Good morning. Remember when we were going through the, I don't even remember, (laughs) but there was a long introduction, and I apologize for it before I started. Well, this is going to be a longer introduction. We might just get through four or five verses in uh, chapter 14, but it's going to be a benefit. It's going to be a blessing. Uh, just walking, and I, I'm a, I like to watch people. I get that from my mom and dad as you get older. If you go to Six Flags, you, you don't even go for the rides anymore when you get a certain age. You just sit on the benches and just watch people. When I go to the mall, after I get what I go there for, I just sit there and I watch people. And that reminds me when we go to Sam's or Costco's, I want you to consider this the next time you go there. One out of 10 Americans claim to participate in what they believe to be the biblical gift of speaking in tongues. I didn't know one of 10 people in Costco's were believers, But that's what the Barna group says when they gave the test. But that's apparently a fact, according to, like I said, the Barna report. I guess if you've been around the landscape long enough, it may not be a surprise that knowing the magnitude of the influence that so-called Pentecostals or charismatic churches have had on our country, There are over 30 million Americans now that attend Pentecostal or charismatic churches in the United States. It's been a growing phenomenon in our country in the last 100 years. And if you know anything about their theology, you might understand why. Because they put a heavy emphasis on this supposing gift of speaking in tongues. It is an emphasis that is necessary because it is hardwired in their theology. There's no way around understanding the gifts of tongues as they do, as it relates to their understanding of the Christian life and the path of sanctification that one must walk. They believe that you as a Christian, if you have been baptized in the spirit, that means born again, that's the new birth, you still need to be baptized by the spirit. And that, that makes a distinction. And if you're not baptized by the spirit, which is supposedly a post-conversion event, some have gone so far as to say you cannot worship effectively, you cannot witness effectively, you can't even work for the Lord effectively. And so you need to be baptized by the Spirit, the uponness. And to be baptized by the Spirit, if you wonder if you have been, it's a pretty easy thing to figure out, really, because all you need to do is determine whether or not you've spoken in what they believe to be biblical gifts of tongues. I suppose all of us want to grow in the Lord. That's why we're here and want to move forward in the Lord, in the Christian life. And if you want to move forward in it, 
you will reach a place where you are baptized by the Spirit, they say. And if you're baptized by the Spirit of God, then you'll evidence that by speaking in what they believe to call it as tongues found in the Bible. So that's what so many people, I suppose, at Sam's would claim that they speak in what they believe is a biblical gift of tongues. Stick with me. Now, in case you've never experienced that, I mean, if you've never heard of that before, you're saying, wow, what is that? Then congratulations. But most of us have been exposed to this teaching. You may have friends or family involved in this kind of thinking. And so this isn't new to you. As a matter of fact, to understand what so many people believe about speaking in tongues, we ought to know something of the history of it. So we need to go back to the 18th century, back to the teachings and the emphasis of John and Charles Wesley. You see, back in the 18th century, the Wesley brothers, who you're familiar with, I suppose, John and Charles had a very dramatic impact on the church in the things they taught and the things they did. The groups they started grew into what we know as the Methodist church, and nothing wrong with that. But they had an emphasis as it relates to sanctification or growth in the Christian life. They began to teach what came to be known as perfectionism or Christian holiness or the holiness movement. Now, of course, we should strive, no doubt, to be holy, to live holy lives, and no doubt we all agree on that. But what they begin to teach and what they begin to emphasize is that we should try to seek to be holy in our progressive sanctification, and that's true. Day-to-day walk, we should be growing and becoming more like Jesus Christ in his image. We will reach a place, though, they said, where God would endow us with a special measure of his grace and allow us to, I mean, it's like you kind of hit, and I'll use this, put it in this vernacular, you kind of hit the turbocharge of spiritual life where things really start to peak and God will meet us in our journey and now we're saved way back there somewhere. But when you hit this stage where we're at now, We just really accelerate, and we start to cast aside many habitual sins, they say, or things that have beset us in the past, and we move forward in a new level of holiness. That's what they say. Although the Wesley brothers, now, they wouldn't call it that you had to be perfect. They would certainly say you reach a place where you start to move more righteously in a Christian life, that was their teaching. At least that's what people who sat under them learned and took it that way. And so it began to blossom in the 19th century in groups like the Methodist Church and the holiness movement and all of that. The connection with speaking in tongues, or should I say more accurately, 
in incoherent speech began on New Year's Eve of 19, in the 1900s. So at the turn of the 20th century, we begin to associate this, what they call the second blessing, which is another key phrase that it began to be called, was speaking in, and I'll be saying incoherent speech, speaking in tongues. These were connected way back with the Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas. There was a pastor teacher at that Bible college named Charles Parham. And Parham was gathering together a group of students and their friends for a New Year's Eve night watch service. Now, if you've ever been to one of those night watch services, they start early and they go late. I've been to a few. I don't know if you had those as a kid, but like I said, they start early and they go late. Well, they were watching for the year 1901, and they're excited about that. Well, this group of Bible students on their study break had just got finished reading the book of Acts, chapter 2, matter of fact. And as they studied, they read about the gifts of tongues that was endowed upon the apostles. As they spoke in other tongues, other languages, that's really really what it means, as they spoke in other languages there in Acts 2. They also were all Methodists, and Charles Parham, that's his name, who was a Methodist preacher who believed in the second blessing theology, was praying for one particular student who was a part of the Bible study in Acts 2, asked if she could have him pray for her that she might receive this second blessing. Well, she came up in front and they laid their hands on her and the pastor began to pray that she would receive this second blessing, that she would hit the turbocharge part of her Christian life. Well, as they were praying for her, she began to speak in incoherent speech. And everyone there, particularly part of that Bible group study said, well, that must be what it is. There you have it. Being, remember, they were studying in Acts 2, chapter 2, and no one understood, hear me what I'm saying, no one understood what she was saying. But as she spoke these incoherent syllables, they began to associate that in their thinking with the second blessing, with the physical sign, because you, you, can, you can understand as a Methodist who believed in the second blessing theology, I mean, we need to know who the haves and the have-nots are. We need to know whether I've accomplished this and I'm part of this second blessing or not. Now, if you want to start a movement, what you need to do, do it at a Bible college where everyone is going to start their own ministry and be masters and leaders in the churches as well. That's exactly what happened, what they experienced on New Year's Eve in the 1900s, the prototype for what we understand, what we see as the phenomena in America as the growth of the tongue-speaking movements. And it came out, if you want to start a movement, you need to go to L.A., and it did, and it became the teaching from this 
in the story of Agnes Osman. She traveled to Los Angeles at a little black church, and a black pastor was there, and she began to study and read about this experience in Topeka, Kansas, Bible study. And he began to teach his church, and I'm sure you've heard of this, on Azusa Street, Azusa Avenue. He began to teach his church about the second blessing that is authenticated by speaking in tongues. And so at their church, they had these week-long meetings. And you know how they were in the old days, these revival meetings. They called it the Azusa Street Revivals. And everyone began to speak in incoherent tongues. And people began to say, if you reach the second blessing in your Christian life, you will have the sign of speaking in tongues. And those two became almost inseparably linked. Now, we've got to, we're we're a non-denominal church. If you really, they say, if you really want to minister right and serve right and teach right, to work, to witness, and to worship, you better have this physical second blessing, which is having, once again, the gifts of tongues. So the folks who say we're evangelical, Bible-believing Christians, and we speak in other tongues, what you need to understand is, because there's a fine line before we go any further, is the speaking in ecstatic speech that you don't know what you're saying and you're just caught up or incoherent language. It's really nothing new. That was the beginning of the kind of the modern so-called Pentecostal speaking in tongues. But it really wasn't anything new in religious circles. As a matter of fact, the more you study, and I never thought doing online Bible study classes and listening all day long and all this stuff, I would get anything out of it. But this, the, the, the information they were giving me, it really rang a bell. And I'll tell you why in a minute. A matter of fact, the more you study the history of incoherent speech, you'll find that it was uh, in pockets of areas all along if you look for them just about everywhere in the world. As a matter of fact, if you read the anthropological texts or if you read missionary histories, you find that folks gathered around their temples or their shrines or in their religious meetings and often found themselves or others found them and wrote of them speaking in ecstatic speech or incoherent language that no one could understand. It was something that you found all over. In some Muslim sects, you had tribes in China, the outback of Australia. You had it even down to the more modern era. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, not Christian, often stood up and spoke before his crowds in coherent speech. I'll never forget when I worked for a uniform company, the guy was Muslim. No, he was a, a Mormon, and he was training me. And we, of course, I was trying to witness to him, believe it or not. He said, oh, you don't need to witness to me. I'm a Mormon. And so, so for some reason, we started talking about speaking in tongues. He had to bring it up. And he says, 
well, I'm a Mormon and I speak in tongues. So that baffled me right now because I was thinking only Christians spoke in tongues. That's why I'm bringing you the news here. He became kind of out of himself, they said of Joseph Smith, and he would then translate to his congregation what he had just said in incoherent language, so much that the founding of Salt Lake City Temple, the elders stood around and encircled the temple and all spoke in ecstatic language. Joseph Smith himself. This quote is from the Kennedy's History, the Mormon Church, page 71. It says this, Joseph Smith said, Arise, all of you on your feet. Speak and make sound and continue to make sound of some kind with your mouth and the Lord will make a tongue or a language out of it. So we find once again in pockets of religious groups, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, you find it. In a large study in the, the Eskimos in Greenland who would fall into a trance state and speak in incoherent language. It was a common thing if you studied it. But germane to the Corinthians church, it was nothing foreign to the Corinthian church either. As a matter of fact, there's a book called Corinth, the Crossroads of the World. I'm getting Shirley to put some in the Bible store. They had lots of temples and shrines, and we learn a little bit about that in the study of 1 Corinthians but they would often accompany their shrine prostitutions and their shrine revelries with speaking in incoherent speech. You could go to the temple of Delphi or Sybil, or you could find any of the ancient gods, and usually some of ancient manuscripts will attest to the fact that usually these ceremonies, these religious groups were characterized by folks breaking out and speaking in some kind of foreign language. Apparently, no one could understand. I just listed a few. Isis, the Thracian cult of Dionysius, the Syrian cult of Agnes, the Frigid cult of Attis, and you can look up all of these. The Persian cult of Mathras, the old Arabic cults of Mahans, used to speak in, in an unintelligible speech. The Greco-Roman world and the mystery religions were full of people sitting around in religious services and getting themselves to a place where they would begin to utter syllables in incoherent things that no one could understand. That's the key. No one could understand. Now, why did I bother you guys? I put you to sleep with that history because it's very important. It's a backdrop of what we're about to look at, if you don't understand, the incoherent speech phenomenon. Of course, it's also found outside of, of people naming the name of Christ. That's why I'm telling you this. You may be simplistically assuming that whenever anyone speaks in an incoherent language, it's obviously something of God. Hmm because it's not found anywhere else. I've listed a few books for you to on the monitor, and I'm going to ask Shirley once again to order them. I have a kind of passion 
for speaking in tongues. And I have a kind of jaundiced look when I see people speaking in tongues because the church is about edifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And anytime anyone speaks in tongues, it's prayer and praise. It's never I'm speaking in tongues to you, or I'm speaking in tongues to you. No, 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 no. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says when someone does speak in tongues, they're speaking to God. That's what it's about. I certainly don't agree with all these books when we order them because they have different meanings, but most of them, they're pretty good. They have been speaking incoherently throughout time. And you can go back as far as some studies. I read a few this week. 1500 B.C., where they can authenticate on some ancient Mesopotamian tablets. But hear the facts, and that's what we want. We want to understand the facts. We want to know what the Bible says. And did you know only in Acts 2, Acts 9, and Acts 19... Whenever anyone spoke in an unknown tongue, they would always translate what the person was saying. Remember, I think it was in Acts 2, Acts 9, when Peter comes down and uh, Cornelius brings two uh, Gentiles down. And Peter was, Peter was on the housetop praying. He comes down and he, he says, what are you doing bringing these Gentiles down? Paraphrase. And he begins to share the gospel. And remember what they did? They begin to speak in unknown tongues. But right there, they gave the answer to what they were saying. And that's the point. If you're speaking in an unknown tongue, there should be someone there who can translate it. Remember the account? The apostle Paul started to speak in the crowds and when the Holy Spirit fell. There was a translator, they were speaking, and they knew what they were saying. They said, hey, they're speaking, and they were, they were speaking praise, and they were speaking worship to God in their tongues. That's what you have to understand. A lot of folks read their Bibles, or they look at, you know, Agnes Osmond, that's her name, and say, well, wait a minute. That was not objectively translatable. As a matter of fact, in the room at Topeka, Kansas Bible College, it was not initially understood by anyone. She just started speaking in tongues. No one knew it. No one in the room understood it, which is the kind of tongues that people start to say, well, I see a distinction here. I see the kind of tongues that people understand initially. At least some people do who understand the receptor language, and others, it can be translated to them. That's why it's very important to read and understand your Bible. Meditate on it. And don't go any further than the Scripture allows. Everything that glitters isn't gold. Satan is not the creator. He's a copycat. So, I mean, that's why I think we need a little background into this incoherent language because a lot of people are basing a lot of theology on the passages we're about to study. Like I said, I'm very passionate about this because when I first got saved, I think I said this about four weeks ago, 
I told Lydia, I said, I'm going to see, I'm, I, I used to listen to Mark Rutland on the radio every day. And he, he had came somewhere in, he had come somewhere in Decatur. And I said, I'm going to get off work. I'm going to go see Mark Rutland. And I couldn't wait. And I rushed down. And this has nothing to do with Mark Rutland because Mark Rutland was the, he, he, he had nothing to do with this. But I want you to understand when I went, and of course, he was preaching on Acts. And then he said, if anybody wants to speak in tongues, and then he put, and of course, be saved, come up front. Now I was saved already, but I wanted the gifts of tongues. And so I didn't, I didn't get to Mark Rutland, but I got to one of his aides, and I got on my knees at the altar and began to pray. And he said, he came and put his hand on me. He said, just start talking. Just start gibberish. Just talking any. Just, and, I said, and I said, what? And I thank God. I thank God that I was in a Bible-teaching church because what, when it, what he was telling me and what I had read, it wasn't matching up. I shouldn't have to start mumbling and making up sounds and noises to do that. I'm, I'm reminded I wanted to speak in tongues so much because I said that's the evidence not only of being saved, but it's the evidence, I thought, of being the Holy Spirit coming upon you. And, guys, that's not true. I was going to work, and I stopped at the QT on 20. I'll never forget. Past 316, right, that QT was there. 5.30 in the morning, and this guy's, he said, you, are you a believer? I said, yeah. He said, Did you, do you speak in tongues? I said, no, I don't. I don't even know why he would ask me that, but a true story. He said, well, let me pray for you. And he began to pray for me five minutes, 10 minutes, not lying, 15 minutes. And finally, I said, that's enough, man. <laughs> that's enough. I got to get to work. You're going to make me late. And that's how much I wanted to speak in tongues because I thought that was a badge or something until I began to read what, what, what 1 Corinthians says and all that stuff. I thought I was less of a Christian because I couldn't speak in tongues and all these things. And I think that's why I have such a passion for it, and I'm explaining it to you guys. But finally, at the church, I just got up and went back to my seat, and I'll never forget. I, when I got home, I was kind of down, and I told Lydia what had happened. But I didn't know my Bible well. And as soon as I started reading the Bible in 1 Corinthians and all that, and just going back to Acts 2, Acts 9, Acts 11. So what? I don't need speaking in tongues. Yeah, if the Lord gifts me with that, that's good. But that doesn't make me less of a Christian. And, and what I'm telling you about the second blessing, the so-called second blessing you got, you know, when the Lord saved me and when the Lord saved you, he gave you everything you need. Our daily walk, reading the word, being in prayer will sanctify you. There's no gift that turbocharges your walk. You get that with the Lord, being intimate with him. That's all you need. And that's why Paul is so adamant. That's why 1 Corinthians uh, 10 and 13, 12 and 14 are so adamant about these gifts. Paul says, I wish that you prophesied more than anything. 
If something was that special about speaking in tongues, Paul would say, hey, this is what you need here. Not to prophesy, but the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. He wants intelligible words. He wants everyone to understand when you come to church. That's how you are edified. Not by any other way. So as we get into this, there's two imperatives here. Command, and he means it's absolutely necessary, and they go together. It's the first verse. You must keep them together. They're commands. And he says this, believe it or not, in verse 1 of chapter 14, I'm getting started. Paul says, pursue love, chapter 13, and that's an imperative command. You must pursue love. You, you've got to have this if you're going to do anything for Christ, that's what he's saying. And he's speaking of agape love. And then he says, and desire, that's the other one. It's a necessity. He said, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you speak in tongues. <laughs> no, he does not say that. But especially that you may prophesy. That you may prophesy. So Paul continues the argument from verse 31. He says in verse 31 of the latter chapter, former chapter, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now he indicates in verse 5 that by the greater gift, those that edify the church. He says, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesy. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets. That wasn't going on in the, Beth in the Bethel church, by the way. Indeed, he interprets that the church may receive edification. That's what we're here for, to be edified. So let's go back to verse 1. The love that we are to pursue, of course, is not, it's described in chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own victor, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the agape love. When we have that, we have it all. We don't need any gifts because without agape, the spiritual person amounts to zero. He's nothing. Agape is the great imperishable because he had just said all these other gifts, what's going to happen to them? They're going to fade away. But not agape in love, in heaven, it will still be there. Not one single gift can say that. So if these two imperatives are not kept together, the point of everything that follows is missed. That's why he says immediately, he says, pursue love and desire, but especially that you may prophesy. We'll come back to that. In verse 2, it says, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but of God. So there's no, there's no, and I've seen this in churches, been there, grew up in some, where a, a man or a woman would get up and, and, and speak in tongues and then interpret 
And they'd be talking about, you need to do this better, and you need to do that, and you need to stop doing this. That's not what the Scripture says. That's why I'm telling you. You're giving praise to God. That's what you're doing. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. And nothing wrong with that. But he who prophesies edifies the church. So prophecy speaks to people for their edification, for their encouragement, for their comfort. And anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. The one who prophesies edifies the church. Paul's emphasis and concern is no doubt. The edification, the strengthening, the building up of God's people. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. We know that speaking in tongues edifies the speaker, not the church, because it is addressed, once again, to God. No one else understands what is said, whereas prophecy edifies the church. It is addressed to people from God. Now, Paul, he's not disparaging, once again, the gifts of tongue. He's just letting them know, use that at home. Or if you're going to use your gifts of tongue, make sure there's someone that can interpret because the church building is about edification, building one another, comforting one another. That's what it's for. That's what Jesus is all about. So he says three things speaking in tongues. First, he says such a person, when he speaks in tongues, he's speaking to God. That is, they are communing with God by the Spirit. And allow me to say this too. It is quite common in Pentecostal groups to refer to a message in tongues. But once again, they are saying, well, you need to do this better. You need to do that better. The Lord told me this about you. The scripture has none of that in there. You can't find it. If you find it, let me know. I'll look. So Paul, he understands the phenomenon basically to be prayer and praise when you're speaking in an unknown tongue. Number two, when Paul says at the latter part of verse two, the content of such utterances is mysteries spoken by the Spirit. It's probable that mysteries means something similar to its earlier usage when he says in Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 2, he says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, so it lies outside our understanding, both for the speaker and the hearer. Verse 5, we'll go down to that. It says, Paul says, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesy. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. The Holy Spirit doesn't have one gift better than the other. But what Paul is saying, prophecy is greater because we understand what's being said. That's the only reason that it's greater. No gift is better than the other. The Holy Spirit doesn't work like that. But it's greater when a guy or a woman prophesies because it's intelligible speech and he's speaking to everyone and everyone can understand it. 
That's what he means by that. He says, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So the problem is not speaking in tongues, I want you to know, but speaking in tongues without an interpreter. That's the no-no. Which from the context, it seems very likely that's what the Corinthian church was doing. Remember, they're supposed to be, we, we, we said this in chapter one, long time ago. They're supposed to be pneumaticos. They're, they're puffed up because they're supposed to be people of the spirit. That's why they were saying, uh, they, 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 they would say they were living in the end times. Everybody else had missed the resurrection. They thought they were so spiritual so they could do, remember we talked about this, so they could do anything they wanted to because they were spiritual and they had passed the test. That's what Paul is saying. No, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. So verse 6, Paul tells them, but now, brethren, and he, he turns the argument around. He says, if I come, just, just use your common sense here, Corinthians. If I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching. Some say his sentence is intended to be hypothetical, but I guarantee you this is what the Corinthians were doing, and Paul is after them about it. And he's saying they wanted Paul to come and speak in tongues for them, but Paul is telling them, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You're already puffed up. It's already too many of you guys speaking in tongues. You're not doing it the right way. And all you want me to do is come here and speak in tongues. And Paul says, I'm not going to do it. Paul, in effect, refuses to come to them and speak in tongues because he would not benefit or profit them. That's what it's about. Anytime we step through these doors, our mindset should be, am I going to be a blessing to someone? Can I benefit you in some way? That's what the Holy Spirit does because that's what Jesus does. And that's what the, the, the Father does. It's not about them. It's about others. How can I benefit you? How can I pray for you? That's how we should walk. So the, verse 6, he says, but now, brethren, Paul says, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? So the alternative is for him to come speaking some form of intelligible utterances. He says, even things without life. Paul says, let me give you an example. Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? Remember way back in the book of Numbers, we, we got a great example of that. Numbers chapter 10, 2 through 9 says this, Make two silver trumpets, Moses tells them, for yourselves. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation, for directing the movement of the camps. When they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle, a meeting. But if they blow only one, then the leaders, the heads of the division of Israel shall gather to you. When you sound the advance, the camps that lie on the east side 
shall then begin their journey. When you sound the advance the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall begin their journey. Now, what if everybody was speaking in tongues? You can never get that message out. They shall sound the call for them to begin their journey. And when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow, not sound the advance. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets. And these shall be to you as an ordinance forever throughout your generation. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets and you will be remembered before the Lord your God and you will be saved from your enemies. So same with these trumpets. God is a God that doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. John Corson tells us the Old Testament is nothing but pictures of a New Testament principle. I love the way the Bible goes hand in glove. So he says in verse 9, so likewise, Paul says, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? We're here to edify people. For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are zealous, Paul fronts on him a little bit here, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification, there it is again, of the church, that you seek to excel. So he says in verse 13, therefore... Let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. If I can't do that, if I cannot do that, that's why otherwise is here. If you bless with the Spirit, how, how will he who occupies the place of uninformed say amen? And we say that a lot here. <laughs> amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church... I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. The worship team can come up for a minute. That's all we're going to do here. I want you to simmer on everything I said because it's true. 1 Corinthians, I've been telling you guys, I've been telling the leadership team is a book that's really touched me because in a nutshell, all it's about is others. Really, that's what Jesus was about, others. If I'm not building others up, I'm really not doing anything. 
If I don't walk in agape love, I don't look like Jesus. No matter how much, if I could speak in tongues, or if I prophesy, or if I do any, could do any other gifts, those are, as we just read, they're going to dissipate. The only one that's going to go in eternity with us is agape love. I believe, matter of fact, I'll change that. I know that's what puts a smile on the Godhead's face. Not how much even prophesying or any other gift. He gave the gifts to us. But to walk in agape love and to walk that way consistently is what pleases the Lord. Love the Lord thou God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two great commandments holds everything. Holds everything. Lord, I pray that we would ask for more of your love that we would not be selfish or self-centered, that we would look after our neighbor and be concerned with our neighbor more than we do, Lord. We have to oppress the flesh. We have to yield to the Holy Spirit to do that. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And if we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we can do it because it's supernatural. And that's how the world will know we belong to you. Father, would you uh, move mightily in every individual lives here, Lord? Teach us to be long-suffering better, slow to wrath and slow to anger, and look to the needs of others more than we look to our own needs, Lord. Only love lasts forever. Father, we thank you for the gifts that you've given us, and we pray that we will use them effectively, Father, for your kingdom, for your glory. Let none of us be puffed up in the gifts that you've given us. If we want to be puffed up, well, we're not walking in love. So, Lord, I pray for a restore. I pray for those that are hurting. I pray for those that are sick. I pray for those that are just going through a hard time right now, Lord, that you would show yourself strong, that you would pour your spirit upon them, that your grace, as the Apostle Paul said, I know is sufficient for us, Lord. Let us not forget to text, call, write a letter. That would be something. To the hurting, to the sick, to the shut-in, and let people know that we care about them. We're the body of Christ. And if one person is hurting, we should all be hurting. We should all care. That's what agape love does. So, Father, I pray that we would allow you to have your way in our lives 
that you will continue to make us more like your dear son, like our elder brother, like our sweet Savior Jesus Christ is. Amen.